Hello and welcome to the latest Erwin Mitchell podcast, here to keep you up to date with the legal and financial news that matters to you. Make sure you follow our channel on Apple, Spotify or whatever platform you're listening on so that you never miss an episode. My name's Helen Dyke and I'm a senior associate in the employment team at Erwin Mitchell. This week I'll be discussing the things that you, whether you're a business owner, line manager or HR professional, need to consider when recruiting, employing and managing neurodivergent colleagues to make sure that everything is in place to help them reach their potential. And to do this, I'm delighted to be joined by special guest Emily Banks. Hi, Emily. Hello. Thanks for having me, Helen. Pleasure to be here. Emily is a founder and CEO of ENA. ENA was designed to help neurodivergent job seekers find meaningful employment with inclusive employers and to help employers realise the talent and skill sets that neurodivergent individuals have to offer. And before we begin, I think we should start off by discussing what neurodiversity means. So neurodiversity refers to the different ways that the brain can work and interpret information. It covers a range of neurological conditions. Examples include ADHD, autism, dyslexia, dyspraxia and Tourette's. Is there anything you'd like to add, Emily, about about that definition? Yeah, I think the main thing from that is that neurodiversity is really something to be celebrated. And it's really that these differences, they're not deficits in someone. It's not something bad or something they need to be ashamed of or anything like that. It's things that are really positive and they bring definitely a lot of strength to the workplace. And it's an umbrella term. So as you said, it does encompass encompass a lot of those different things underneath. Um, And it was actually developed in the late 1990s. So it's relatively quite new. So people don't necessarily understand it. So if it's something that you're thinking, oh, maybe I should do a bit more research on, um, then it's really great to sort of understand that a little bit more as well. Fantastic. Thank you, Emily. Um, Do you want to give the listeners a bit of an insight into what ENA does? Yes, of course. So um, ENA is a specialised recruitment agency for neurodivergent adults. And what that basically means is that we're a niche in what we do. We only really support neurodivergent people and we help employers to really attract, recruit and integrate neurodivergent talent um, within the business. So what we do, we have four core services that helps to sort of bridge the gap between the neurodivergent talent um, community and um, employers and sort of HR teams. So this includes recruitment, where we sort of broker job opportunities um, and sort of find opportunities that are really suitable for neurodivergent people and connecting them to sort of neurodiversity friendly employers. Um, we also do quite a lot of training. So for managers, HR teams and the wider teams to help you really understand what autism is, what that may mean for your business and to put it into context as well. Um, we do a bit of coaching. So that's really to help your neurodivergent employees thrive within the workplace and provide sort of a confidential and sort of secure sounding board for individuals as well. Um, and a bit of consultancy on the side as well. So if you're really, really stuck, you're not really sure what neurodiversity is, how that applies to you, what you would do about neurodiversity in your business, we can help you sort of adapt your recruitment methods, come up with new policies and sort of rec- useful recommendations as well to support you um, in sort of engage with neurodiversity in the workplace as well. Excellent. Thanks, Emily. Um, and, and what about you? Tell us a bit about your background and the, the story behind Anna. Of course, yeah. So um, I actually started energy in my third year at university. And this was um, after I did a brief stint in sort of corporate banking at the time. So um, there was a couple of things. So I realised that when I worked, worked within financial services and the banking sector, um, I understood that 
I sort of, I guess, learned over time about the sheer lack of diversity within the corporate sector. Um, and I think this was really from right from sort of early career level to even executive level that they were largely attracting the same sort of cultural fit that they know and love. Um, and they were really missing out on this valuable sort of element of diversity. Um, as well as this, so I was really inspired by my neurodiverse family. And I grew up in a family where um, I guess it was very different to my friends' families. And I didn't really understand why, instead of going to things like theme parks and centre parks and busy beaches and busy cities, that we would often go on sort of quiet walking holidays in the Lake District. And so after we did all these holidays, um, later on, my mum actually told me that my brother and father were autistic, which meant that a lot of things sort of started to fall into place for me and sort of what I started to understand why my family was so sort of different and unique and how they sort of did things and how we did holidays and things like that. Um, which meant that busy sort of social situations, crowds and unfamiliar environments made them feel quite anxious, which also meant down the line, things like interviews and recruitment processes meant they really did struggle to find sort of appropriate employment. And things like picking up the phone, meeting new people and doing interviews um, meant it was actually a huge challenge to them. And it was something I definitely took for granted. And I soon realized that they weren't alone in their struggles, definitely. And that a staggering 68% of all autistic individuals in the UK are actually unemployed, much like them. Um, and these stats really haven't changed in decade, decades, which showed a great need for sort of intervention as well. And, and from it. your experience with um, the corporate banking, and then obviously you've, you've talked a lot about your family, what um, in particular have you have you learned about neurodiversity in the workplace? What do you think that listeners should look out for? Um, what I've really learned from that is that workplaces definitely doesn't allow for that sort of diversity of thought, which means that a lot of neurodivergent people don't even have the sort of that initial opportunity to actually get through those recruitment processes. Um, as I said previously, employers and sort of corporates are often looking for that cultural fit. So looking for those people that are really confident, able to communicate and things like that, which often means that neurodivergent people are often missing out on these really great roles they'd be, they'd be fantastic for. And how does ENA support employers with, with getting that right? So we are a specialist network for employers, job seekers and parents, as well as carers and other people that support neurodivergent people into work. And really our primary mission is to help um, employers sort of attract neurodivergent talent as well as making the global workforce more neurodiverse, inclusive and accessible for all really. Um, we really help them to, choose, uh, to, to achieve this, sorry, and um, through having an accessible jobs board and we do training and workshops, as I mentioned previously, um, a bit of consultancy and also employee coaching. So we really want to make sure that what we do is a sort of start to end point and every section of the sort of employee life cycle, we're there to sort of support you at every step of the way from sort of the attraction piece to the recruitment piece to then helping your sort of neurodivergent employees thrive within the workplace as well. Sounds amazing. So for the next half an hour or so, we're, we're just going to look at that employee journey that you mentioned, Emily, uh, and we're going to look at the considerations that you need to make when employing neurodivergent colleagues. We're going to look at um, how employers might put in place reasonable adjustments to help them succeed, how to manage them. And obviously, you need to do all of that without falling foul of the Equality Act. So Let's start with exploring some of the common barriers in the workplace, um, particularly in the light of COVID. Uh, many biz businesses have adopted hybrid working um, and we're seeing that with a lot of our clients and indeed at Erwin Mitchell. So it's really important to ensure that we recognise those barriers. Emily, what, what would you say are the most common barriers that you think might be relevant here for employers? 
So um, as I mentioned previously, the workplace is largely designed for that sort of traditional way of working, which is based on how effectively neurotypical people behave, how they act and how we sort of operate. So for example, um, a lot of the workplaces are open plan offices, which means that people can sort of sit where they like when they go into the offices. Maybe that's on a Thursday now in that sort of hybrid environment. Um, they can sort of go wherever they please. So there tends to be conversations happening at each sort of part of the office. So really there's no sort of designated places for to allow for different ways of working and different styles of working. So for example, if someone's autistic, um, typically people with autism really like to have the element of structure and routine, which helps compensate for that largely um, confusing world that we live in. That may mean that they sit at the same desk, for example, they come in at the exact same time in the day, whether that's nine o'clock and they leave exactly on 5 p.m. So these sort of things really help compensate for this confusing world that we live in. So naturally, if we are loving the world of um, sort of hot desking and different things like that, that would mean a lot, it causes a lot of challenges for a lot of neurodivergent people, um, which can create a lot of barriers to them actually succeeding in the workplace. And I think in general, employers don't really understand their employees as much as they could. So if you have someone that likes to work a bit differently, um, it's likely that these individuals would have to fit into that sort of norm and traditional ways of working and those sort of working practices that we sort of know and love. And identifying these barriers, it's really important, isn't it? Because without recognising them, obviously there's the risk that employers could fall foul of the Equality Act if they don't make those reasonable adjustments. Um, and there are the legal considerations that employers should be aware of. So those with neurodiverse conditions, they're likely to fall within the definition of a disabled person under the Equality Act. Um, and just to give you a bit of detail around that, a disability is a physical or mental impairment that has a long term and substantial adverse effect on a person's ability to carry out normal day to day activities. And it's really crucial for employers to recognise that an individual's neurodivergent condition will normally have a substantial and long term effect on their ability to carry out those normal day to day activities. And impairment that can include sensory impairments, impairments with fluctuating or recurring effects. It can be developmental such as autism um, and as a result employers aren't only obliged not to discriminate against those with neurodiverse conditions but they also need to consider that duty to make reasonable adjustments. So that's really important and that means considering the work environment, making changes where appropriate, uh, and considering issues relating to performance management. Um, Emily, what reasonable adjustments do you think that employers should be making? Are there any particular ones that you think you'd, you'd like to point out? Yeah, so I think, I think first thing says it's all, I think employers are in general, I think are quite scared of the word reasonable adjustments because they're not sure what's classed as reasonable. Like it's not really a defined sort of concrete term as such. So I think if you're an employer out there and you're not really sure what this is. And I think from a management level as well, if you are sitting on things like panels or you are onboarding new members of your team, really just get to grips with what reasonable adjustments actually are and what they mean. And of course, there's loads of different examples of what you could do and what's classed as reasonable. Um, and as an employee, you actually have a duty under the Equality Act to actually put reasonable adjustments in place. So it's not something you should be scared of. And um, you do have a legal ob obligation to put these in place. But I think getting to grips with what they are and what some examples are is really, really useful. And some examples we commonly suggest to candidates and employers that we work with, including things like um, adjusting the employee's hours. So it could be that 
um, you allow for sort of more flexible working. And I don't mean that you need to let an employee work on a Saturday afternoon or a weekend or anything like that. It's more just allowing them a bit of flexibility in their working day to suit how an individual may like to work. And for an autistic employee, especially, um, people with autism may really struggle with busy commutes and that sort of really rushed sort of busy morning, whether that's on the tube or local buses or trains, for example. So it could be that as an employee, you can say to that employee, well, if you're really finding that commute difficult and really overwhelming for you, you could then come in at half nine or 10, for example, just so it shifts your working day by maybe an hour, um, an hour, just forward a little bit. And obviously that's just a simple alteration you can make to actually make someone's life a lot easier. Um, I think flexible working definitely in general is really, really helpful. Um, so for individuals and employees with ADHD, um, they often like to take maybe shorter breaks or do shorter stints of work. So it could be that instead of having a really long lunch break in the centre, like one hour from 12 to one, it might mean that they like to take half an hour at 11 a.m., for example, and half an hour at two o'clock and really just split those down a little bit to make their working life a lot easier. I mean, they can have sort of set areas of focusing throughout the day, um, which can certainly help. Um, and then thirdly, the one that we I think is much less common, but and sort of much less understood is actually something called job carving, um, which means that you may alter the actual responsibilities of a role and actually just um, tweak them a little bit to actually just approach and actually help someone's strengths within that role, which just makes it a lot bit, a little bit easier for them as well. And to get the best out of that person as well, that makes perfect sense. Absolutely. So employers, you mentioned obviously recruitment procedures. So I think you're right to mention that in terms of the need for employers to look at that and to think about where those procedures, those processes that they use for recruitment could potentially adversely impact those people that are neurodiverse. Um, and there's one legal case that springs to mind, Government Legal Service and Brooks um, from 2017, um, which is worth having a look at. So the, the employer in that case required all applicants to complete an online multiple choice situational judgment test, which sounds rather complex. Uh, and the claimant requested adjustments on the grounds of her having Asperger's syndrome. Uh, she was told that there was no alternative test format that was available but that time allowances could be made. Um, she claimed indirect discrimination and discrimination uh, as a result of failing to make reasonable adjustments. And it was accepted um, by the tribunal that Asperger's obviously was a disability. It went to the Employment Appeal Tribunal and they upheld the tribunal's decision that the requirement was an unjustified provision, criterion or practice. So it was unlawful indirect disability discrimination in that case. And the employer also breached their duty to make reasonable adjustments. Interestingly, on that case, the tribunal not only awarded compensation, but they also ordered the employer to review its recruitment processes, which I thought was really interesting. We don't see that very often in tribunal cases. Um, just off the back of that, Emily, are there any particular steps that you think employers should take as part of their recruitment process in particular? Yeah, so there's definitely a number of things you can do to make your recruitment processes more accessible to neurodivergent candidates. And one of the key barriers we often see is actually of the job description. Um, so we work with so many employers who give us a wide variety of sort of job descriptions to look at. 
but a lot of them really aren't structured. They really aren't clear what the requirements are and um, what the sort of logistics and sort of the conditions of actually applying are, which makes it hard for a lot of neurodiv neurodivergent applicants to sort of assimilate the key bits of information and what actually, what actually they need to do um, to apply. So I think just from the sort of job description side and the job advert side, just making sure they are structured um, another biggie we see from the job app is job description side is that people are including sort of requirements that aren't really essential to that role. Um, so it's likely things like if it's a software development role, for example, and you include excellent presentation skills or excellent communication skills, it's likely that you do need to be good at communication, but you're not sort of working with clients on a day to day basis. You don't need to present. You don't need to create big PowerPoints and things like that, um, which can mean that as things that aren't essential actually being included in the job description and for autistic candidates especially they may they might take things a lot more literally than someone that is neurotypical would which means that they wouldn't even bother applying so as a result of that you're therefore missing out on so much great talent just because you're not sort of formatting your job descriptions correctly you're not sort of a, really thinking about what's essential and what is desirable as part of that role um, which can mean you are missing out on a lot of neurodivergent talent as well and um, I think from that, um, interviews are definitely a big sort of barrier as well. Um, you've probably heard from a lot of sort of different articles now on LinkedIn that um, for neurodivergent candidate interviews can be really, really, really challenging. So I think anything you can do to put, make interviews a lot more easier for them as well is really, really essential. And that could be as simple as things like giving them the questions in advance if possible, um, giving them sort of links to what your company values are and what you're expecting from them from that interview and it just means that the, the sort of fear of the unknown is really diminished a little bit and it can make the interview a lot more predictable environment for them which means they can then use that information to then plan and then execute their answers a lot more clearly as well which means obviously as an employer you're then getting the very best out of that candidate which is essential and of course employers don't only need to think about the recruitment process it goes way beyond that doesn't it in terms of the adjustments uh, obviously once the employee is onboarded um, it's worth reviewing ACAS guidance on this there's some excellent Absolutely. guidance um, and it's really important to train managers as well so that they really understand so just a few things to consider then around that would be um, ensure that you've got that inclusive environment so that people feel comfortable disclosing their neuro neurodiversity. Ask whether any reasonable adjustments need to be made. I think that's really important to have that level of trust with the individual so that they can tell you what they think they need and then you can consider it. Um, as I mentioned, ACAS's guidance on neurodiversity in the workplace is really good and it states having a workplace that is set up to proactively think about what can be done to support the needs of each employee can make it much easier to identify and implement those adjustments for neurodivergent staff. And particular steps around that then would be limiting the amount of information, uh, things like bright artwork displayed, displayed on walls, um, thinking about dividers uh, in appropriate areas to block and reduce noise, having dedicated quiet areas, uh, allowing staff to book meeting rooms if they have a particular task that requires a lot of concentration, providing visible instructions. So, for example, on things like photocopiers, um, thinking about flexible working arrangements. You've mentioned that, Emily, to say that that's that can be really important. 
um, and providing staff with organisers so that they've got their own space, you know, a locker, a cabinet, that sort of thing. It, it might be useful for employees to have a, a diagnostic or workplace needs assessment, um, perhaps through occupational health. Um, and then think around social interactions and really try to understand uh, ambiguous communication, emotions, how that's going to impact when the individual's meeting new people. Um, think about when you're starting and ending conversations and new and intimidating situations that might have an impact on them. And think also about uh, communication differences. I think that's really important. And then around hidden communication challenges to so think about body language, facial expressions, reactions, eye contact, um, gestures and how close you are to the individual. Those are all potentially going to be quite important to them. And that's where your conversation with the individual is going to help and they will explain these things to you. And then in terms of workplace expectations, so around social su support, um, think about understanding the social rules of the workplace and how they understand it um, and make it really clear what's expected of the individual. Don't assume the individual will be able to just learn from observing uh, other colleagues. Explain what's expected in un unstructured times um, and when they should be joined in and when you might need to encourage them or help them. Um, and think about how you can help them to make and build those relationships, those friendships, those social relations with peers. Maybe a buddy system would be something that would be useful. Um, and then also think around boundaries. Um, and I'm sure you can comment on that a bit more, Emily, but it's really important to make it clear what their role is. Speak, speak about support um, and signpost them so that they're fully sure of that. Um, and then I just mentioned around the importance of training. We've mentioned that already, but uh, there's a, a case called Sherborne and Enpower from 2018. And even where an employer does take steps towards identifying an employee with neurodiversity and recommends adjustments or makes adjustments the training of the man manager is absolutely key to getting it right so you might in your business think that you're doing it right but is the manager and the manager in that case failed it would seem to understand the real effect of the claimant's autism um, didn't provide the adjustments offered lower paid employment and actually ended up dismissing the claimant perhaps in circumstances where capability as a process would have been um, more appropriate. So, I mean, it, it just shows how it can go wrong, doesn't it, Emily, if the, if the managers aren't doing what you want them to do in terms of that support? Yeah, absolutely. I think all the things you said are brilliant and it may seem a bit sort of overwhelming to think you've got to put all these things in place, but really it all sort of, I guess, buckles down to two sort of concrete ideas. And this one is that you need to make sure you are creating a sort of neuroinclusive environment where neurodivergent people feel like they can be themselves and I think it's not just their the responsibility of the individual to then disclose it's of the other people that so there might be a lot of people that have children or grandchildren or friends or relatives or whoever that is that may have a connection to neurodiversity it really is down to that sort of um employer to make sure they are sort of creating that inclusive environment where people can be themselves and all those other things are brilliant as well so a lot of neurodivergent people are very very happy and comfortable to then talk about their neurodiversity and how it impacts them and their strengths and their challenges so just being able to have that conversation within that environment and putting all these different things you can put in place and this support and things um, is really really helpful as well.
And ultimately, employers should be focusing on the positive, shouldn't they? And you've, you said that right at the start, Emily. So looking to change their mindset by focusing on what somebody is good at and not what they might be perceived to be lacking. Um, yeah. For example, people with ADHD, they can have higher levels of spontaneity, courage, empathy. They can hyper-focus on certain tasks. Those with autism, they're more likely to pay attention to complex details. They will have, they're likely to have very good memories and show certain specialty skills. Uh, people with dyslexia can perceive certain kinds of visual information better than those without the condition. So there's a, a whole host of positives that you really need to focus on. And just on the training point, just to mention that we've got a training um, program um, for managers that's online. It's really cost effective. It's worth having a look at, particularly on the module around equality and diversity that can really help your uh, managers to ensure that they're fully equipped to support people with uh, neurodiverse needs. Um, and if it's of interest, please do get in touch and we can help you with that. So, Emily, do you have any final words for our listeners? Um, I think in general, it's really best to just talk about neurodiversity, the change within sort of the wider society and the workplace and more a sort of educational setting really does come down from people actually talking about it. So although at first, if you, if you don't necessarily know much about neurodiversity, it could seem quite a scary topic to approach, especially in the workplace, if you are a manager, for example. So I would say, hopefully this has given you the sort of um, catalyst and have a look at neurodiversity, what it actually means, and hopefully apply that to your organisation. And yeah, just in general, just talk about it and we can start to embrace it in the workplace. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Emily. And that's it for today. If you found it interesting, then please make sure you follow our channel and join us for our next episode. If you've got any questions on what's been discussed today, feel free to connect with me, Helen Dyke, on LinkedIn, or you can email me on helen.dyke at erwinmitchell.com. Thanks for listening to the Owen Mitchell podcast. <laughs>